From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Many people with colon cancer experience no symptoms of the disease in its early stages. But finding colon cancer early provides the greatest chance for a cure, which is why colorectal cancer screening is so important. Several screening options exist, each with their own benefits and drawbacks. On today's program, we'll discuss colorectal cancer and screening with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, personal DNA testing, what you can learn about your genes and your health from Mayo Clinic's Gene Guide. That's this week's program, up next. Well, of the cancers that affect both men and women, cancer of the colon and rectum is the second leading cause of cancer death in the U.S. Now, that's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But there is some good news. Colorectal cancer is also one of the most preventable cancers if people get the recommended screening. Now, most cases of colon cancer begin as a small, non-cancerous, benign clump of cells called a polyp. But over time, unfortunately, some of these polyps turn into colon cancer. Because these polyps may be small and produce few, if any, symptoms, doctors recommend regular screening tests to help prevent colon cancer by identifying and removing polyps before they can become cancerous. Here to discuss colorectal cancer is gastroenterologist Dr. John Kissel. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kissel. It's nice to meet you. Yes, nice to meet you too. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Kissel, great to have you on the program. Great to meet you. We want to talk about colon cancer. And the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States, and I, uh, if I'm correct, if you don't smoke, it's the cancer that's most likely to kill you. That's in fact correct. So lung cancer is still number one, uh, but that incidence of that cancer is slowly decreasing as fewer people are smoking. Is it also fair to say that it's one of the most easily prevented? Yes. So colorectal cancer has often been called the most preventable but least prevented cancer due to the fact that probably only 50 to 65% of people participate in screening programs. And that's far less than uh, there are people who participate in some of the other screenable cancers at the population level. Uh, we think probably 75 to 85% of women comply with mammography for breast cancer prevention and uh, pap smears for cervical cancer prevention. So we have a long way to go with colorectal still. Fairly common cancer. Do, do we have any idea, do we know what causes it? Well, we know it affects about 1 in 20 in the general population, and then we know that there are modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors that will probably alter that risk. We know that diets that are high in red meat or saturated fat, carrying around excess weight, smoking, those are modifiable risk factors. That alcohol. Could, alcohol does also play a role. Now, these are relatively minor. I don't mean to dismiss them, but they probably will modulate risk by about 20 to 30%. There are other factors that we can't modify, like our family history and our age uh, and our sex. So it's more common in men. Uh, it's more common if you have first-degree relatives with colon cancer, and it's more common as we get older. Does everybody get polyps? We think that just about everyone will have a polyp before it turns into cancer. There are certain individuals with high-risk genetic syndromes in whom the polyps grow so quickly mm -hmm. that we go in and we just find the cancer. But that probably applies to just a small minority of patients who are at risk, maybe 5% of people or less. Age is the most important risk factor. It, it's uncommon to see colon cancer in younger individuals, but you do. 
Yeah, unfortunately, there's there's new data that's coming out uh, that says that, you know, while we knew that maybe about 10% of people who get colon cancer are under the age of 50, uh, there's some new population level data that was just released late last year that shows that maybe that incidence rate is starting to slowly creep up among individuals aged 40 to 50. And it's changing the way we're looking at screening, but thus far there have been no formal guidelines that have suggested that we lower the average risk screening bar to 40 years of age. That may be done in certain uh, individualized circumstances that would be discussed between a patient and their doctor. Because right now it's when you turn 50 is when you should have your first colonoscopy. Yeah, by and large. For the average risk general population, it's age 50 and up. What about symptoms? If you do have colon cancer and it isn't detected early or isn't detected on, on some kind of test, what symptoms might you have? Well, that's the really unfortunate part. So once symptoms develop, A, they can be nonspecific, and B, they can often indicate advanced stage disease. So if you're starting to have problems like a change in bowel habits, if you're noticing anemia, blood rectum, unintentional weight loss, abdominal pain, all of those should certainly be investigated. And the minority of the time would any of those actually herald a cancer. But if you have a cancer that presents with symptoms, it's usually going to be at advanced stage and harder to treat uh, or even not curable. And that's why we really emphasize that people come in for a preventative screening exam when they're feeling well. I don't want to go back to polyps again, because I think uh, lots of times the fear that comes with this, you know, people don't want to go in for a screening. So I kind of want to help people that are maybe a little nervous about this. How often is that suspicious looking polyp really trouble? Yeah, that's a great question. When we do colonoscopy, we are expected to try to find a polyp at least one in four times that we do an exam. We should find a precancer if we're looking hard enough. That's a, a, an across the board minimum uh, industry standard. Uh, when we do find polyps, we try to remove them uh, almost all the time so that we can have one of our pathology colleagues do a detailed examination under the microscope and tell us whether it's a precancer or not. And if it is a precancer, we look for certain types of features under the microscope that might give us a sense of how quickly it might grow, and that gives us a sense of what to anticipate for that individual in the future. Would we bring them back in five to ten years? Would we bring them back in three years? Would we bring them back next year based on what we found? You mentioned that people who have symptoms often come in with later stage disease. Help our audience understand what you mean by stage. That's a great question. So when you get a diagnosis of colon cancer, your likelihood of cure is directly proportional uh, to several factors about the tumor, including its size, whether or not it has grown into any structures that are next to the colon, whether or not it has grown into lymph nodes, and whether or not it has spread to other organs. If it's grown into lymph nodes, patients would get chemotherapy after surgery because that's a tumor that has a very high likelihood of recurring or coming back. If it's spread into distant organs, those uh, tumors may not be curable. They can in some instances, so it's good to consult an expert center in the treatment of colon cancer if you're diagnosed. But many patients that have tumors that have spread outside of the colon uh, may receive medicine in order to try to prolong survival, but they may not be curable at that stage, unfortunately. Where does it most often spread to? Which organ does it go to first? Um, blood from the gut preferentially goes to the liver, uh, and that's from all portions of the intestine, including the colon. 
and blood from the liver then flows into the lungs uh, as part of the, the uh, reoxygenation of blood. And so when patients present with metastatic disease or disease that has spread to organs outside the colon, we find it in the liver and the lung. Mm. If that spread is relatively contained, only involving a small portion of the liver or a small portion of the lung, sometimes those patients can receive chemotherapy and receive surgery with the intent of trying to cure them. All right, you mentioned a couple of options for treatment. One, chemotherapy for patients who have had spread of the disease elsewhere. Uh, you mentioned surgery. I assume that the best thing to do is to be able to cut it out if you can. Um, any other treatment options? Well, uh, actually, depending uh, on where the tumor is located and if it's a very, very early stage tumor, sometimes we actually remove them with endoscopic uh, tools like a, col- a colonoscope. Uh, and sometimes our surgeons can do um, a, a minimally invasive surgery, if, especially for low-stage rectal cancers. They can actually remove just the tumor without cutting out any bowel. Those are um, very uh, specific uh, situations and, and under certain sets of circumstances that those minimally invasive approaches can be used. But if a cancer is found, the majority of the time surgery will be required. One question we often get from patients who are diagnosed is, will I need an ostomy or a stoma bag? And that actually would only apply to the minority of patients. So fear of a stoma should not be a deterrent to getting screened. Going back to that point you made earlier of people being afraid of what might be found. Radiation ever play a role? Absolutely. So primarily for rectal cancers, uh, because the rectum is encased in other important structures down in the pelvis, Uh, Radiation is frequently applied to rectal cancers uh, before surgery in order to try to control uh, local spread of disease and get the best surgical outcomes. We are talking about colorectal cancer with an expert from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. John Kissel. So, Dr. Kissel, we got a myth or matter of fact. Tracy wants to know. If I don't have any symptoms, I don't need to get screened. Is that a myth or a fact? That is the central myth (laughs) behind colorectal cancer prevention. So we really want to try to... Uh, perform screening and preventative services in patients who do not have any symptoms. Symptoms are bad. Let's say that you're a talk show host of a a medical show and you're (laughs) going to be turning 50 this year and it's time to get screened. I'm just saying it might be happening to someone I know. (laughs) Is the first thing that I'm going to do go and get a, go in and have the colonoscopy or is there other options for me? I know. I think that's the first thing you ought to do. (laughs) The prep is what I'm understanding to worry about, but let's, I need to hear it from the horse's mouth over here. Yeah. So as someone who performs colonoscopy, uh, I would say that that is a very good screening option. But at this point in time, we do have a variety of different tests that people can choose from. And there are relative strengths and and weaknesses of each of those tests that probably deserve uh, some form of interactive discussion uh, with your doctor as as a hypothetical uh, potential patient. Excellent. All right. So I think you should have the colonoscopy, but tell us about the other options. The other options probably in order of discovery would include the flexible sigmoidoscopy, which is sometimes combined with a stool test for uh, invisible blood or occult blood. Uh, or sometimes combined with an x-ray. That is a pretty good test for finding polyps and possibly cancers on the left side of the colon, but it really does not look at the whole organ. So why would you do that instead of the the whole shot? Well, if you find a polyp on the left side of the colon, then a patient would be referred for a full colonoscopy. But there are uh, people who've argued that uh, the flexible sigmoidoscopy, because it only looks at half the colon, 
uh, is potentially a, a, that's the major drawback of the test. Um, not to be be crude, but people have compared it to mammography of the left breast alone, for instance. Mm. We know now that probably half of the polyps and half of the cancers occur on the right side of the colon. Sure. So you should probably look at the whole thing. A test that can do that, another one is CT colonography. And I think that that's a relatively sensitive test for polyps and cancer. It's often, unfortunately, not covered. Uh, it's not yet covered by Medicare, but it is available to some select patient populations. Uh, it's available for Mayo patients. Do you still have to do the prep? You still have to do the prep. And see in the order prep. to see, yeah, in order <laughs> to see the polyps and the cancer, they also have to put a balloon in the patient's rectum and inflate the colon with air in order to take good quality pictures. But that's an important point is that the prep is required. We're joking, but the prep is the part that everyone says is the worst part of it. I hear that mm -hmm. many times in a given day. Is there any yeah. research being done to improve the prep part of a colonoscopy? There are, um, there are new prep options, which are better tolerated, but there are two other options for screening that don't require prep at all. The oldest of those uh, would be a test for occult or invisible blood, and that's a test that is applied uh, in a patient's own home. Uh, they provide their own sample and send it in. Mm -hmm. they, that test has to be done every single year in order to be effective. Uh, but there is good data uh, that shows that that test will lower the mortality rate from colorectal cancer, but to a modest degree, maybe about 15% compared to not getting screened at all. Okay. I haven't heard you mention Colaguard. Well, the newest option <laughs> uh, on Q is... I'm, I'm trying uh, to save you here, Tracy. <laughs> yeah, the, the multi-target uh, stool DNA test, uh, which was co-developed here at Mayo, is another prepless option that uses a, uh, a stool uh, blood marker, uh, hemoglobin, but it also uses several DNA markers that are found in colon polyps and colon cancers. And those are assayed from uh, the stool by a, a single uh, central clinical laboratory. Uh, to get that test done, a patient's doctor uh, needs to register with that laboratory. Uh, they issue a prescription for the test. It's sent to the patient. The patient doesn't have to do any prep or skip any medications. They provide a single sample. Uh, it's picked up by a commercial uh, carrier and brought to that central lab. And then the doctor will receive a result, positive or negative. Uh, patients who are positive will then require a diagnostic colonoscopy to evaluate that test result. Is it good test? And, and who is it for? So this is for average risk uh, patients. So this is not yet approved for patients who are known to have overwhelming family history or genetic syndromes that predispose to colon cancer. We don't use it in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, I think it's a good test, but I have to uh, caution you that uh, I have a conflict of interest with the test being part of the investigative team here at Mayo uh, that helped develop it. Now, there is some evidence that it is just as good as colonoscopy for detecting colon cancer. True? Yeah, for colon cancer, uh, the sensitivity of the multi-target stool DNA test, a.k.a. Cologuard, uh, is 94% for stage 1 and stage 2 cancer. Those are the ones that we want to catch uh, in comparison to colonoscopy. Stage 1 and stage 2 means localized or just barely spread outside the colon? Curable stage. All right. I guess we need to talk about prevention because uh, it's, a, it's a common condition. You said, what, one of every 20 adults is going to get cancer of the colon and or rectum. If there is anything you can do to avoid that, obviously we'd want to do it. What's your advice there? Yeah, I think um, screening is the number one step. And I'd say the remainder of measures probably boil down to common sense things that your mom told you when you were very little. Um, don't smoke. 
don't drink to excess, probably eat a balanced and healthy diet where you're getting uh, liberal quantities of uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, probably avoiding heavily saturated uh, forms of fat in the diet, uh, potentially from animal sources. Exercise regularly and then see your doctor uh, for regular preventative services uh, comprehensively, not just for colon cancer. Did I hear you say that too much red meat can cause colon cancer or is a risk factor for colon cancer? Well, we've worried about whether or not too much red meat is a risk factor, but that's very difficult to study. So we know that diets that are high in saturated fat may be associated with the risk. Sometimes people who like to eat a lot of uh, red meat or saturated fat might have other high-risk behaviors like smoking or drinking. So they're very, very difficult to study those factors in isolation. What about aspirin? There, I've seen some stories that suggest that taking aspirin can help prevent colon cancer. Yeah, we think it can. And we advise that and other chemopreventative strategies that would be medicines taken specifically to prevent the disease uh, in the patients that are at the highest risk of developing it. So we advocate the use of those preventative medicines in people who are at higher than average risk, but that's not yet fully endorsed for the general population. Where is the future going? What is the research? Yeah, I think where the future is really going is uh, looking at being able to screen for multiple cancers at once. That's something that our research program is working on here, and we now know that there are competing uh, universities and industry groups around the country that are interested in the same question. So uh, with a stool test or a blood test, could we start screening for cancers that we don't have uh, population-level uh, screening services for now? Things like pancreatic cancer, gastric cancer, esophagus cancer, uh, those are things that we can't really look for because they're in the center of our body and they're difficult to reach with scopes. It's a disease that you need to get screened for because if you do and you catch it early, it's a curable disease. One of the most preventable out there. Absolutely. Dr. John Kissel, we're talking about cancer of the colon and rectum. Dr. Kissel, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about Mayo Clinic's Gene Guide, the new DNA test kit backed by Mayo Clinic Science and Education. And now, here's the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. A sore throat is a common symptom of an upper respiratory infection, such as a cold or flu. It's also a symptom of a bacterial infection, referred to as strep throat. How can you tell if your child's sore throat is caused by a viral or bacterial infection? Mayo Clinic Family Medicine Specialist Dr. Tina Arden helps make that distinction. So, if your child complains of an itchy sore throat that hurts when he or she swallows, most often it's a viral infection that will go away on its own. You can treat the symptoms, but there is no cure for a cold or flu virus. Dr. Arden says antibiotics simply won't work for a viral infection. If your child complains of throat pain without coughing, it may be a sign of a different upper respiratory illness. Arden says strep throat is a specific bacterial infection that can happen in the back of the throat. Telltale signs include tiny red spots at the back of the roof of the mouth or red and swollen tonsils, sometimes with white patches. Other symptoms may include headache and, of course, sore throat. Your health care provider can order lab tests to confirm if it's strep throat and may offer antibiotics to treat the bacterial infection. Dr. Arden says if a child has other symptoms, such as a runny nose, sneezing, coughing, it's highly unlikely you're dealing with strep throat. Plenty of rest and warm, soothing liquids will help. And make sure your child has been immunized with a flu vaccine. 
And in other news, pedicures can feel great and make your feet look fabulous. But are they dangerous? Reports of people getting infections after pedicures have prompted some people to worry. Dr. Rachel Meast, a Mayo Clinic dermatologist, has safety tips to consider the next time you head to the spa for a pedi. Check to be sure the spa is licensed properly. Meast says licenses often come with the appropriate education, so it means the spa is following the appropriate protocols for how to keep you safe and how to prevent infection. She says bacterial and fungal are the two most common infections, so to avoid them, she says don't be afraid to ask to make sure the spa cleans all equipment between customers. Bacteria, viruses, fungus, these things are everywhere. So to reduce your risk, Dr. Meese says don't shave 24 hours beforehand and don't have your cuticles cut because if the cuticle is gone or removed, and even if the tools are clean, once you've got that opening in the skin, you're at risk for infection. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, this fall, Mayo Clinic released its first direct-to-consumer genetic testing product, finally. Mayo Clinic joined forces with a personal genomics company called Helix to create the Mayo Clinic Gene Guide. It's a DNA test based on a simple sample of saliva, and it gives results in several different categories. It'll tell you if you carry gene variants that you aren't probably aware of that could affect your children. It'll tell you if you have genetic variations that may increase your risk of a disease or a condition. It'll tell you how your genes might affect your response to certain medications. And you'll discover how genes might impact your metabolism or other physical characteristics. All that from a little bit of saliva. Simple sample of saliva. That's right. (laughs) Here to discuss is Dr. Matthew Ferber. Dr. Ferber is a medical geneticist and led the development of the Gene Guide app. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Ferber. Thanks so much for having me. We're really excited to talk about the product. Yeah, the last time that you were here, you said, we're working on a product. And I said, let's have you back when it's ready. And now it's ready. It's exciting. We couldn't be happier. Uh, The app has been alive for about six weeks now, and it's doing very well. We're excited about the uptake. And you say app. How is the app a part of this test? We, we deliver a PDF report result, just like any other laboratory test, but we also explain those results in detail through our online result education program. And that's available through any computer, but also it's been optimized for your mobile devices. So you get some feedback. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and what kind of feedback? So taking a step back real quick, you know, uh, genetics can be a complicated topic for people to learn. And so primarily what we wanted to do is create a genomics education product, but really engage the user using their own DNA result. So what you're getting back are the results in the categories that you discussed in the intro. But along with that, you're getting health insights and education around those variants that you're receiving back in the app as well. So we think that we found the right recipe to keep people excited and engaged, giving them insights based on their own DNA. Some of the products that are out of the marketplace, uh, more for the ancestry piece of it. Um, This more for the educational piece of it, is that fair to say? Yeah, education and health insights. I think where Mayo Clinic wanted to be with this first application is to really set a ground level base of understanding for the consumers out there. We hear a lot about what genetics is doing in the popular press, and oftentimes it can seem as though it's a silver bullet. And we want people to know that it's not. 
there are still a lot of things that people need to consider when they're trying to take good care of themselves. Genetics is one of those things, but so is a healthy diet, um, stop smoking, reduce your drinking, exercise, that type of stuff. So there are places in the app that really try to give a fair and balanced report for your genetic information, but then also um, your other healthcare considerations that you might have. So what are some reasons that, that someone might want to do this? I think they're twofold. I think the first is you're just really curious about genetics. Maybe you, you've read a little bit in the lay press, um, but you never took a genetics course in high school or in graduate school. And so now you want to learn a little bit more. That's one reason. The other reason is there are some really fascinating topics in here. We know that the genes that we contain within us can have an impact on how we metabolize different drugs. That's a very common interest that we hear in the general population. And so there's some real important things that you can find out within Mayo Clinic Gene Guide around how your genes allow you to metabolize medications that you might be taking. So it's a Mayo Clinic product, but that doesn't make you a Mayo Clinic patient if you use Gene Guide. That's exactly right. So this is a product, um, some folks call it direct-to-consumer. We like to modify that and say it's near-consumer. This is still a physician-ordered test, um, but it is initiated by the consumer themselves. And if we give them their results, we want them to be comfortable with that, but we want them to have the guidance of a genetic counselor or a physician should they have uh, additional topics that they, that they want to explore. Can they access some of that through the app that you mentioned? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So we have a physician network that we work with that provides all of the pre and post test counseling that needs to take place. And so the, the individuals who actually initiate the order are the consumers. But the order will then go to one of our healthcare providers to actually order the test. Those aren't Mayo Clinic physicians, and it's not that patient's or that consumer's personal physician. It's really a network of physicians that we've educated about the strengths and weaknesses of Mayo Clinic Gene Guide and which consumers are actually appropriate for the test. So if a person uses Gene Guide, gets that information, how do they get it to their doctor so that it can go into their file. And I think that's the other benefit to having both our traditional printable PDF report okay. and the user interface. The individual who has a pharmacogenomic change that wants their physician to be aware can print out that PDF report and take it into their physician like any other lab report that they can get access to. And then that physician can read the report and decide how to enter it into the EMR. Are genetics and genomics the same thing? You know, I have to be careful with that. I use them interchangeably, mm -hmm. but genetics is traditionally uh, one gene at a time, whereas genomics is more global, uh, your entire genome. Mayo Clinic Gene Guide looks at multiple different targets, so it's easy to slip between genetics and genomics. But broadly speaking, they mean interchangeably about the same thing. You know, there are a lot of different tests out there, some of which you see advertised on TV. How does the Mayo Test Gene Guide compare to those? I think it goes back again to the level of commitment that we've made to education within this product. We're not just giving insights and having the individual look at those insights and then doing a Google search to try and get more information. We've really tried to tie a lot of Mayo's deep genetics and medical understanding to each of the insights that we supply in GeneGuide. 
how much does it cost? <laughs> well, Tracy, <laughs> that's a great yeah. question. <laughs> should I put it on my Christmas list? <laughs> well, yes, of course you should. <laughs> Uh, the regular price for the product is $199. Over the holidays, we are running a special. Sure. It'll be $159 throughout the duration of the holiday. This test is not reimbursable by insurance. This is a direct pay from the individual's pocket. And it is available for purchase for others. So if you want to buy gifts, you can. We do expect that individuals are of 18 years or older in order sure. to engage in the product. All right, holiday special, one fifty nine ninety five or just one fifty nine one fifty nine ninety nine. That's right. And you can order it, I assume, just go to Gene Guide on the internet. Is that the easiest way? That's correct. Just go to Mayo Clinic Gene Guide. If you do a Google search for that, will be the top hit. I think you know the the follow up is what's incredible to me. Congratulations to you and your entire team. It was a huge team, a very large effort over two and a half years, and it's just amazing to see this thing come to life. And, and see people using it and enjoying it. Mayo Clinic Gene Guide with Mayo Clinic Medical Geneticist, Dr. Matthew Ferber. Dr. Ferber, thanks for being with us. Thanks again for having me. Really appreciate it. When we come back, we'll talk all about the joy of the holidays and the stress that comes right along with it. The holidays are often referred to as the most wonderful time of the year. Why didn't you sing that? <laughs> That is a song, isn't it? Yes, it is. (laughs) But the holidays can be stressful. We all have obligations and demands on our time. You know, parties and shopping and baking and cleaning and entertaining, to name just a few. Luckily, there are some ways, even some practical tips, to help us deal with the stress and ward off the sadness and depression that can sometimes accompany the season. And here to help us handle the stress of the holidays are Mayo Clinic experts, uh, Susan Kutchel, nurse practitioner and integrative health specialist, and Debbie Fuhrer, a mind-body medicine counselor. Welcome to the program, both of you. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, great to have you both. But before we talk about what we're supposed to talk about, I want you to explain to our (laughs) listeners and to me uh, what your titles mean. Nurse practitioner, I understand, but an integrative health specialist. Susan, you start. What does that mean? Yeah, that's me. So actually, I'm a a clinical nurse specialist. So that means I'm an advanced practice nurse, and I have a specialty training in integrative medicine. And integrative medicine Mm -hmm. means? used to be the thought of alternative medicine and then okay. moving to more complementary. Now we think of it as integrative medicine. So things that are not always considered part of conventional care, but we consider those things that we can integrate into the medical practice to help people manage symptoms and overall work with uh, improving their health. Correct. All right. And Debbie Fuhrer, you are a mind-body medicine counselor. Now tell us what that means. <laughs> I believe that every single thought we have, there's a chemical reaction. There's a response in the body. And so we start with, hey, what are you thinking? Are you thinking things that are negative and maybe at best neutral? Gosh, you know what? There's another way to live. And so we explore ways to add more meaningful thoughts, more things of novelty, of curiosity. And I actually had a doctor from the Alzheimer's unit shadow me, and he said, Deb, everything that you're teaching your patients is the exact same thing that we're teaching ours. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. So what goes on in your mind has an effect on your body. Definitely. If you have depression, I can see how the holidays with all of the additional stress can really get you down. But there's some people who actually just have depression during the holidays because of all the stress and all of the activity. 
It's kind of like you were talking about, uh, we have expectations for the holidays. You know, we're busy otherwise, and then we add on, and we have to do uh, shopping, we have to wrap presents, we have to do cards and all those expectations. So people put a lot of expectations on themselves, and sometimes that can lead to anxiety or feeling a little bit of sad as well, too. Or they're kind of lacking um, kind of the meaning in the in the holiday. So what is that meaning? Or kind of seeking some connection. So how do they connect with other people in meaningful ways during the holidays? What are other warning signs? They may uh, overeat during the holidays. They Isn't may that part try of to the holidays. <laughs> that's, that's a warning that's what sign. You do. It's a balance in there, right? It's, okay. it's balance. You know, overindulge in uh, alcohol in uh, the things that are self-soothing for them. And we're saying, hey, you know what? You could really enjoy what you are eating, but do it in a more mindful way. And then. Uh, the whole point of the season, what is the meaning behind all of this? And the more that we can delve into that, then it can help reduce their anxiety and help them connect more with people in a way that they will really enjoy instead of what is presented as the ultimate holiday, which is everyone's always laughing and having the best time ever at the holidays, and how come I'm not? Mm-hmm. And we go, hey, that's a reality expectation mismatch. Do you see an increase in the number of referrals around the holidays? I mean, we have a lot of consults to begin with because life is, can be busy and stressful in just the way it is. But over the holidays, sometimes we'll see a little bit more of that as well, yes. So we get a chance to talk about that specifically when we see folks in a consult. So how do we take what we tell you ordinarily and then apply that specifically during a holiday session when it's a little bit more challenging as well? And it's also the darkest time of the year, short oh, as daylight. It. So you've got winter blues on mm-hmm. top of maybe holiday stress. Yeah, there's been days where we haven't seen the sun for a long time. I think we're probably all feeling that a little bit right now as well, too. So how do we help people find ways to connect um, with light in a different way? Debbie was talking about this earlier. So light boxes or even can we encourage people to go outside for even 20 minutes or even less than that, just so they can get a little bit of nature for that to help with their their winter blues as well, too. So it's finding what are those unique things we can help people with, even, (laughs) even when the weather gets to be a challenge as well. I specialize in stress management consults. Well, and you so, must be. You're really busy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I was going to say. We don't notice an increase because we always have an increase. Now you have a different kinds of stress during the holidays, but it's layered on top of all the other kinds of stress. Overload at work, relationship problems, maybe they have health concerns. And now you're going to add on that they're supposed to be happy during this time of the year. And then they feel like, oh, no, now there's some more pressure and some more stress. What am I doing wrong? And so then we can talk about what those expectations are and tap into their skill sets. Each of you give me three practical tips to help holiday stress and depression. Well, um, I can start, I guess. So I think my first one is kind of what we talked about earlier, lowering some of the expectations and looking at what's most meaningful. So this is my tip for this year. I'm going to ask my daughters who are teenagers, what is most meaningful to them in the holidays? And we'll make sure that we do those things as well. And looking at what we have control over and what's most meaningful. That's a nice box just to focus on some of the less stuff we can let go then. 
Um, and again, some of the most happiest people are the people that do find meaning in the holidays. So what's most meaningful and how do we savor it? So those things we really love, how do we really pay attention to them and savor that and discuss it as a family? And then uh, the other big thing is making connections. So and in uh, unexpected ways. Debbie and I were talking earlier about just ringing the bell mm-hmm. and stuff can be a way to connect. So we might not think about that, but just think about the people you get to talk to when you do that because you're bringing joy sure. and people ask questions and you get to connect. So finding interesting ways to make connections. Debbie, what are your three? Uh, curiosity. Every day I do a walkabout and I try to go out in the world, and one of my favorite things I do with my husband is we go on a treasure hunt. And every day we promise we're going to bring home a treasure to each other, and that's usually a funny story or a kind story or something new we've learned or something beautiful in nature, and then we share that for at least two minutes. Hmm. And um, that counteracts that the typical American family spends about 90 seconds a day talking to each other now. Do you have another one? Okay, so I also like thinking that every day I'm writing the story of my life. And I want this day to be remembered in some kind of way that's going to be meaningful for me. But then maybe through that, I make a connection with someone. So like just today, for example, I did my walkabout. And what I do is I send silent well wishes to the people I walk by. Don't say them out loud because that could maybe look a little creepy. But if I'm just thinking them as I walk past, uh, I hope that person has more healing take place. I hope that person laughs hard. I hope they have the connections they need. I think those key principles probably for both of us of what we said is really being in that spirit of gratitude and compassion over the holiday season. We've been talking about how to handle stress during the holidays and beat the winter blues with Susan Kutchall, a nurse practitioner and integrative medicine specialist, and Debbie Fuhrer, a mind-body medicine counselor right here at Mayo Clinic. Thanks Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.